the second uh, external fireside chat for Founderati, our speaker series. Um, so our third one so far this year total. Uh, so today's an awesome day. We get to uh, have a fireside chat with Chris Olson, who is on our board of Crosschecks and was our first investor and has been with us since the very beginning of, of Crosschecks. Um, you know, Chris is obviously one of the founders of Drive Capital, um, worked at Sequoia before that, and has been a part of a lot of uh, companies that are now multi-billion dollar companies. And we're so fortunate to have Chris on our board and as an investor and believer in Crosschecks. Um, and he has a great um, wealth of experience that he's gained from the Valley and now brought that to the Midwest to, to invest and build a massive company. So join me in welcoming, welcoming Chris Olson. Thank you. All right. So we'll just uh, go ahead and get started. Great. So the first question is you were quoted in USA Today saying, when you look around the Midwest, you see the raw ingredients for what could potentially be a great economic driver for tech. Uh, why is Columbus the next big startup capital? So, I mean, when we were in Silicon Valley and we were telling people that we were going to move, leave there to come to the Midwest and found uh, invest in founders who are building companies out here, I think most people thought that, uh, that we were crazy, frankly. Um, I mean, most people will tell you because it's what they hear from other people in the Valley that you have to build your company in Silicon Valley. And I used to tell that to founders when I was at Sequoia um, until we started looking at the Midwest. And then all of a sudden we started looking at this and saying, okay, why? Like, why do you have to be in Silicon Valley? Like, what do you really need to build a company? And I think about it as it's very simple. If you're building a great company, you need three things uh, and probably in this order. Um, you need great employees, you need great customers, and you need a little bit of capital. And when you look at the Midwest and you start to get the maps out and you start to do the research, there's more here than any other place on planet Earth. And it's more concentrated here than anywhere else, at least in the first two. The only ingredient that's missing is the capital. And so when we look around and look at a university like, let's say, Ohio State, or you look at Michigan, or you look at um, you know, these old Big Ten universities that previously churned out thousands of degrees that were in liberal arts, you know, those guys have now migrated towards graduating engineers and engineering talent that's building technical companies. So you've got that first ingredient here. There are more engineers who graduate from the Midwest than anywhere else on planet Earth. You've got world-class research. 25% of all the research done in the United States is done here. So you've got tons of innovation from people doing that, that research. And then you need customers. And your customers that are here are you know, the Fortune 500 companies or consumers. So you've got 60% of the US population within a one-day car drive of Columbus. You've got 150 of the Fortune 500 companies are based in the Midwest. And yet, despite that, there's no venture capital here. So when we look at that, we think that you know, if we can raise the money, we can solve the last problem. Um, the first two you kind of can't change, like it is what it is. And where it previously used to be that you had this specialized skill sets of um, people who knew how to build tech, tech at like a hardware level, like you had to touch the metal. The Google guys, for example, to build a search engine, they would come in and pitch VCs about how much extra space was between their motherboard so they could extra cool and run faster. Search times, like I don't hear anybody talking about that in the Midwest companies today, and nor in any tech company today you can rent that infrastructure. So where previously you were beholden to the small number of people that knew how to do that stuff, 
that stuff is now ubiquitous. And yeah. I look at the stuff you guys are building as an example, and look at the graph technology. I look at um, you know the, the migration over time from um, you know Neo4j into and Spark and all these other things. These are this is like cutting edge technology, and that's happening here. So when I see all this stuff happening, I see it as the potential for the next several decades unfolding with multiple multi-billion dollar companies in this region. Very cool. So you you uh, took several leaps of faith, right? I mean, you were at Sequoia, like the world's premier venture capital firm. You know, you, you fought hard to get that position in the first place. You ended up at the best uh, firm, you know, that's been known as the best in, in in the valley traditionally now number what two or three behind Coastland Drive is what we say. Uh, but you, you took this leap of faith. You you left Sequoia, you moved all the way to a place that you never thought you were going to live, and you started something new, not knowing it was going to work. Uh, I think that's very interesting because as a founder of a company, starting something new is hard. Moving is, adds another layer, but leaving something as amazing as what you had even adds another layer. So. Um, Tell us about that experience and how hard it was, and tell us about like the personal challenges and things that you had to talk, you know, to your family about when you were making that transition. Yeah, that's a good question. The, um, you know, actually, it's funny. In, in hindsight, the way you, when you say it like that, it sounds really scary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I lived through it, I didn't think it was scary. Um, you know, what I mean, basically, what happened was we had this crazy idea that you could build these great companies in the Midwest. And we kept looking for a reason for someone to show us that we were wrong. You know, like, like okay, show me, like, are there not great companies in the Midwest? Are, are people in the Midwest, do they, are there only small world thinkers here? Like, is it, um, you know, that everyone's smarter in Silicon Valley? Like, we kept looking for reasons why this was wrong and we couldn't find it. And eventually it got to the point where we've, I've started to feel like, you know, it was a bigger risk to not do this than it was to do it. And like, I used to have this nightmare in my brain where like I would walk in and get fired at Sequoia. And that got replaced one day by, I had this nightmare that I woke up and there was a guy who left Sequoia and he started a venture fund focused on the Midwest. And I was like, oh my God. And that was like, you know, what? that started to happen a lot emotionally. And yeah. all of a sudden I realized that as I was working on this idea and processing it in the back of my brain, that I had a choice in life. And I had just had a kid and she was great. And I was looking at her and I remember thinking to myself like, one day she's gonna walk and she's gonna talk. She's gonna come home and she's gonna be like, Dad, you work a lot. Like, what do you do all day? And I was gonna tell her, I had two choices. I could say, look, I inherited the greatest brand in the history of venture capital and I didn't mess it up. <laughs> or I could tell her that, look, I saw an opportunity. A lot of people thought it was crazy. I had done a ton of work on it. Um, we found an opportunity that nobody else was paying attention to and it may have sounded crazy to people who didn't have all the information, but since we had all the information, we felt like it was, an it was a risk worth taking. I and like that. That's awesome. you know, I was lucky because my, my wife was super supportive and you know, my daughter was too young to argue. Um, <laughs> so you know, it was in a good position to do it, but it's not without challenges. You know as well as anybody else, like when you found a company, Everyone thinks, you read TechCrunch and everyone thinks it's just, just like, oh, just this smooth sailing up and to the right. 
my experience has not been that way. Yeah. Um, I can give you tons of stories about how we almost died uh, you know, every single week. Um, even still, we had those stories happen. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just part of the nature of it. And, but to me, the, the, the true north was here was an opportunity to do something nobody had ever done before. And I would much rather tell my kids that that's what I spent yeah. my time doing I like um, than you know, making a bunch of money. Yeah, no, that's a great story. We, you know, we struggle, or we, one of the challenges we have is convincing people to leave, you know, a quote-unquote great job uh, with a lot of security and, and move their families across the country in some cases to cross-check. So I can, you know, kind of use that story that that you just told us. I think that's pretty powerful. Um, so let's go back in time a little bit and talk about the undergraduate Chris and uh, how you got into venture capital in the first place and kind of your journey through that. Sure. Um, so I, when I was a kid, I played squash. That was my passion. And not a lot of people play squash. And that's easy to be very good at it. So not a lot of competition. Um, but I loved it. And I was going through college and decided one day that um, I should be the best squash player in the world. And I just hadn't had a chance to really commit myself to it. So um, when I was in college, you know, following this passion, I, one day I called up the guy who was the number one player in the world. And I said, hey, you've never met me before, but I'm 22 and I'm pretty good at squash. And I think if you let me play with you every day, I think by the end of this year, I could beat you. And uh, he said, he didn't know what to make of me, but he said, listen, all right, I'll meet you for coffee. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so <laughs> agreed to play with you every day after he, that? Well, I met him in New York, because um, so they took the train down, I met him in New York. I told him about how I wanted to get better and how I felt like I was you know, suffering from, I could only get as good as the environment I was in, and if I was in that environment of in this court with the number one player every day, I would be at the number one level. And you know, he was receptive to it, and fortunately, he let me live on his couch in, in London, um, and I, I literally like, I was a squash monk all day. Um, you know, I was breakfast, lunch, I was training, I was eating, drinking squash every single day. Um, and within four months, I had learned two of the most important lessons in life. Number one was, this wasn't built for <laughs> number one player in the world, just not at that level. Uh, those guys operate and they have a better DNA for it and they can do things I could never do. Uh, and number two, which ended up being the more valuable lesson, uh, was that if you pick up the phone, you'd be surprised, and you cold call people, you'd be surprised who calls you back. And that second lesson was the most valuable thing for me. So um, I went to my fallback career, which was always going to be venture capital. So the uh, <laughs> pretty good the, fallback. That's the good. Uh, the idea behind it was okay. Well, I'll just call up the number one venture capitalist in the world and see what he says. Maybe he'll let me sleep on his couch. Uh, <laughs> And it didn't work. Uh, you know, they all told me to go away. They said, you know, you don't know how to do anything. Um, you've never built anything. I said, yeah, but I'm young, I'm smart, and look at this, you know, great forehand. Um, and <laughs> they consistently told me to go away. So, um, you know, I came out and I always, I wanted to be in venture capital. Like that was my dream in life. Like I wanted to invest because I loved entrepreneurs. I loved technology. I loved the idea that a super small focused team could take on massive companies and run that forward five years and emerge to be bigger than even the the biggest of big companies. Um, And that technology was going to enable this revolution over the course of our lifetime. That to me was like really, really exciting. Um, And I wanted to participate in that. I wanted to help in that world. And that was what I wanted to dedicate myself to. 
Um, so I ended up going, you know, I graduated with a political science degree, which as you know, is useless. Yep, um, absolutely. But <laughs> so yeah, I don't know where the science is in that, but it, you know, <laughs> it was, uh, it is what it is. Came out of school um, and there were programs in, um, in finance for people coming out um, that wanted to work in, uh, in uh, these investment banks. So I looked at this and I said, well, okay, I can't get into venture. Maybe I could get into these banking programs. And I did. And so I you know, went through all the figuring out where's the best place to go and get in these programs. And my idea was I want to get experience so I can go back to these venture firms and tell them I've done something um, that was relevant. And so I went to this bank. It was at the time was UBS. And the reason I went there was the uh, head of the group told me that if I were to come to his group, I'd have the opportunity to work on more companies, more, uh, more deals than any other group on Wall Street. And I liked that idea because um, the concept of, that meant to me I would get more responsibility than I would in some of the other places. Um, and he was right. And I was, so I got a job there. And next thing I know, I was uh, like four months out of school and this company's going public. And they were like, hey, Chris, go on the road show with the CEO. And I was like, me? me? And they were like, yeah, go. So I'm going with them. We're flying around. We're going to all these meetings. We get to the end. And one day, the CEO turns to me. And he was like, what do you think? And I was like, you want my opinion? Like, dude, I was in the fraternity house four months ago. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, anything. Um, but he valued, you know, I learned that like, and very quickly what I saw was that, you know, business and technology and companies and all that kind of stuff is not, um, it's not a, uh, you know, a, um, rocket science. It really isn't. It's, it's very common sense things. And if you work really hard at it, you can learn things um, that other people will overlook. Um, and so I did my stint there, called all the venture firms again, and I said, hey, good news. I'm done. I've, I've figured out business. I've been in, uh, as an analyst for two years. Um, and they told me, um, you know, there were some firms that would hire uh, guys who had that uh, kind of experience. And so I did. I wormed my way into a venture firm and then suddenly the tables turned and I was the right place at the right time. Got a call from uh, the Sequoia guys and they were like, we want you to come over and lunch. And I was like, I'm in, let's do it. And you know, I wouldn't tell them this, but they could have paid me nothing and I would have gone. Yeah. Uh, this was like my dream. And, uh, and there I was at Sequoia in my first week. And all of a sudden I get there and I'll never forget it. I had an email in my inbox from Mike Moritz, the dude himself and it was uh, hey it was uh, you know Mr. Christopher I've signed you up for a field trip please meet me at the airport and so I was like I, yeah this is like the, my hero right and there I was uh, the squash player on the airplane flying down with Mike Morris to go see a company and you know, from there came here that's awesome um, so what did your mentors say when you decided to leave Sequoia and start drive my mentors yeah I've never had any oh really yeah I've never <laughs> had a mentor um, um, so what about your, like the people you worked with at Sequoia? I mean, I know, I know the general idea that they said you thought you were crazy, but did anyone like seriously try to talk you out of it? Or could they see that you had a passion to do no, it? No, I think, I, no. I actually got a lot of encouragement. I got oh, a lot of great. people who were saying, you know, if this is what you want to do, you should go mm -hmm. and you should do it. Um, and that was a you know, very encouraging process. Very cool. And they still thought I was crazy, but you know, they, people, I think the attitude, and again, this is the mentality in Silicon Valley in general, that if you, you are super passionate about doing something, you will, you will be able to be successful. 
even if other people have tried to do it before and, and failed. And you know, I think people saw in me a, a, a super passionate um, emotion that I, I was going to do this, and you know, I was really excited about it. So um, let's talk a little bit about when you first came to Columbus and uh, looked at cross-checks. What were some of the reasons why you invested in cross-checks? What really, what really did you see? Well, um, I hate to give you too much credit, um, but I actually think it was the other way around. Um, I think when I met you, Mark introduced me to you, uh, we were still in the like plotting phases of whether or not we were going to do drive. We didn't have a fund or anything. Mm -hmm. um, and Mark was trying to convince me that you have entrepreneurs in Columbus that are as good and as ambitious as people in any corner of planet Earth, especially including Silicon Valley. And you know, when I met you, I'll, I you know, remember you were there and Brad was there and you had this whole thing and you were going to revolutionize pharmacies at the time, which is you know, hilarious given where we are today. But um, the, uh, you had this vision about you, you had this passion um, for building cross-checks that was really rooted in a personal problem. And you had a ton of domain knowledge from your days in the NSA where, and you were coming at the healthcare industry with a, a ton of ignorance that was going to lead you to solve problems that nobody else would have been able to solve because they would have solved them the traditional ways. Um, and you had a first product. You had a product that was in the market with customer, with a customer. Um, that I think you were actually paying to be the customer. Well, but. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they loved it, and you know they were doing, they were doing, all, they were answering all the, you were answering all these first questions that right. everyone was looking for. You know, would people put their fingerprints down? Like, I don't yeah. know. Uh, yeah. Would hospitals adopt? I don't know. There was a lot of that stuff, but I think we saw in you that you guys were, you had the opportunity to revolutionize healthcare. You had the opportunity to do for healthcare what technology has done for other industries. And every time I've seen that happen, it's not a small company. It's not a $10 million outcome or a $100 million outcome or a billion dollar outcome. Every time I've seen that, you have next generation phone companies, next generation search companies, next generation you know, uh, social networks, like all of these things. And I saw that very much in what you guys were building here. And so to me, it was like, well, this is an easy decision. Let's go found a venture fund to go invest in these guys. And cool. you know, this, the rest is history. I like that. That's awesome. Thanks. Um, so tell us about Columbus and what you think it's going to look like, the landscape here in, in a couple of years. Do you think there will be more drive capitals in Columbus in a couple of years? I hope so. I mean, that's, that's what I would love to see. I mean, the, the dream for me is that everyone who previously thought that we were crazy now is kind of like, Maybe what's going on? What you got? How many companies? You got fifteen companies? Maybe I'll come out and visit. And we've had a lot of that now. So we have a lot of investors who are coming out and visiting, and you know they all happen to be in Columbus, right? Yeah. They're like, ah, oh, I'm like, dude, that doesn't happen here. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's a Saturday. Uh, the uh, so we've had a lot more of that, and I think what you're going to continue to see is that. Um, as you guys and the other companies that we're working with um, grow up and succeed into being massive businesses, um, the rest of the world will, will start to pay attention more. And inevitably, nature hates a vacuum. So right now, the Midwest has 22% you know, of the US GDP, but 6% of the venture dollars. That will get fixed over time. And as much as I like to believe that we're great, like we can't raise that much money 
Um, so like we can't fill that void on our own. Um, nor do I think it's a healthy thing for us to be the only source of capital um, in an ecosystem like the Midwest. Um, I think it's you know that's one of the worst things that can happen is you've got all the capital concentrated in a small number of brains. The best thing is you've got um, a lot of different people with funds of similar size investing in things that they like, and you know because a lot of times I'm wrong. And that is just because I don't invest in a company doesn't mean it won't be a great business. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to see more venture funds do it. So um, I think you're going to start to see that happen more and more. Um, you're seeing it in other cities, certainly, that other folks are going out and starting to raise funds and they're getting bigger. And what's really interesting to me is you're starting to see young people who are in California looking at the Midwest now and saying, I'm from Indiana. I'm smarter than Chris. Like, I can go do this. And I think that's, that's great. And yeah. I want to see more of that. Awesome. So of all the companies you've invested in, what's the one that's the most valuable today? So the most valuable? Mm -hmm. uh, can I answer it tomorrow? Because uh, we have a company closing <laughs> around. Um, well, I mean, in, in, your, in your history, in your, in your total history as an investor, not necessarily just within your current portfolio. Oh, the, the company I invest in is most valuable today is a company called Klarna, uh, which is a, a company out of Sweden, headquartered over there that I invested in when I was at Sequoia. And you know, they've gone from what was a teeny tiny team of 20-something uh, entrepreneurs in Stockholm where everyone said you can't build a business um, to now they do several hundred million dollars in revenue. Um, they're worth multi-billion dollars. Um, they're profitable, novel thing. Um, and they just expanded the US actually. And they opened up an office here in Columbus, Ohio of all places um, for, to be their US headquarters. That's awesome. That means a lot. For Columbus, I mean, having a having a multi-billion-dollar company headquarter their U.S. presence here—that's pretty sweet. I'm excited about it. Yeah. Um, you know, from their standpoint, they look at it and they said it's the right thing for us to do for our business. Yeah. You know, from their standpoint, they have they need people who know payments. There's a lot of people who do that here. There's a lot of smart people in the uh, financial services and J.P. Morgan and in Nationwide and Alliance Data and all those companies. There's a lot of customers here for them. Uh, in the retail space, you you know L Brands and um, all, Abercrombie and all the infrastructure around those companies, Big Lots, all that stuff. Um, so they looked at it and said it's kind of a, a hidden gem in America uh, where they could come in, land, get their first customers, and then be able to grow their business. So um, looking at Columbus and the well, not just Columbus, but the Midwest in general, and thinking about like early stage seed financing and seed capital here. Do you think there's anything that it that needs to change about kind of seed stage capital in the Midwest as compared to seed stage that's available in you know the Bay Area or Austin or Boston? Yeah, I mean, I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, and they complain a lot about the um, the seed and the early stage ecosystem that's in the Midwest. Um, I got to tell you, I don't see it. I meet with a lot of angels out here. I see a lot of incubators out here. Um, I think the thing that needs to change in that ecosystem here is the entrepreneur's perspective on those investors. I think you're just as likely to get seed funding in the Midwest as you are in Silicon Valley. There's lots of guys who write small checks here, you know, the 100K, the 200K, the 500K. And I hear entrepreneurs saying, well, I can't get funding. And it's like, well, maybe you never, maybe it's not your, maybe it's not the funding environment. Maybe it's your idea. Maybe it's your product. Maybe it's your whatever. And I think that, you know, the, the inverse of that is that to assume that you would get funding in Silicon Valley or New York or Boston or wherever is, is totally flawed. 
because um, I, I just see it. I mean, whether it's the Brandry or it's Rev One or it's eighteen seventy one or like th this is there's a lot of this stuff going around. Yeah. Um, way more than when I was a kid in Cincinnati. There's like didn't exist. There was yeah. there's no such thing as an incubator. Um, yeah. You know, there's three in Cincinnati. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about your recruiting efforts. I mean, you know, obviously at Crosschecks, you know, we've grown to over a hundred people in a short amount of time. So recruiting's been a, a thing for us and. Uh, but you've had to grow too as a venture firm. So tell us about uh, some of your recruiting efforts and have you been successful? Sure. Let me tell you about my first recruit. Okay. So we, <laughs> my very first what recruit. My very first recruit was a, uh, a guy that we had just invested in this company and they were going to revolutionize the healthcare world. <laughs> and all of a sudden, uh, Brad and I are, are chatting about it. And I was like, where's Sean? He's like, oh, he's in Baltimore. And I was like, what do you mean he's in Baltimore? <laughs> he's like, well, you know, he's kind of here in three days and that. And I was like, no, this is not happening. Um, if that happens, then this won't be a successful company. Um, so my first recruit um, flew down to Baltimore. Mm -hmm. I went to, uh, to go tour an incubator. Um, and then met with uh, the entrepreneur there, who mm -hmm. shall remain nameless, and um, <laughs> started to talk about the merits of um, of Columbus and you know building a business oh, here yeah, and yeah, being yeah. present and all that that's kind great. of stuff. Huh, that's interesting. I think I remember that yeah. pretty well. But you were there for a different meeting, right? I was. You happened to be in Baltimore. No, I did. I did. It's like happen they happened to be. to be in Columbus. That so. is absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. and, and we did meet. Now, to be fair, you just had a kid. Uh, just were, yes, just the day before. The day before. <laughs> <laughs> and there Plenty I was on time. your doorstep saying, yeah. "You need to move." Yeah, uh, yeah, that was fun. But it worked. Uh, no, but I, there was a point in time I think where I literally owned or rented a total of five houses in that middle of that whole move process to figure out how to get to Columbus, but we made it. Yeah. Yeah. Did, right. So true or false, did you ever drink uh, Maple Crown Royal on the rooftop in, of a rooftop in Columbus? Very true. <laughs> Very true. Very true. That was it, part of a recruiting trip. <laughs> that was part of the recruiting trip. <laughs> and never had and how early did you have to wake up the next morning? <laughs> was that the same day Andy was here too? That, that he was there earlier. He was there that night. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah but now he's here. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about recruitment of people in your firm. All right. All right. All right. Uh, so the, um, no, I, I, look, it's the hardest thing for us is to get people on the airplane because it's so easy to just dismiss it. It's like, look, this is not the story that TechCrunch is writing about every single day. You know, come to Columbus, Ohio, where all your dreams come true. Um, I've yet to read that. Yeah, um, so every day or? Yeah, uh, but you know, that's truly what I believe. Um, but it's not because, uh, you know, the, um, you know, I don't think people that we're recruiting here, they're not moving here for the, uh, you know, the, the, the weather or the quality of life and uh, all that kind of stuff. I think that stuff here is great, but, um, you know, the people we try to recruit here are people who are mission driven, people who are moving to Columbus because they believe this is their opportunity to change the world. And the best recruiting tool that we have is showing them all of the stuff that's going on. I mean, you come in to visit Crosschecks, there's a lot of energy in this place and it's hard to not get infected by that enthusiasm. And when we show people, whether it's Crosschecks or it's Aver or it's Beam or it's Root or whomever, um, all of these companies, I think it's, it's pretty easy to see that this is a bustling startup scene. And is it as big as San Francisco? Nope, not today, but it might be over time. 
and it might take us several decades to get there. But everyone forgets that Silicon Valley in the 1970s was cherry orchards and apricot orchards. It was not this, you know, the, the traffic jams that you have today. Um, so maybe we'll be lucky in Columbus, we'll have tons of traffic jams 20 years from now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll be fantastic. But, yeah. <laughs> but when people get on the plane, Nick, you know, we have yet to lose anybody. Yeah. We have yet to have somebody get on a plane, come to Columbus, see what's going on, and then not move here. Hmm. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good uh, record. So we have a thing at Crosschecks where everyone in the company has a doppelganger, right? So everybody has like a celebrity they look, they look like. So, you know, since you're part of the team here, who's your doppelganger? Do I get to pick it or do you guys pick you it? You get to pick it now, but I think it's probably already even on the wall. But no, go ahead. Who, who do you think it is? It so, somebody that anybody says you look like, you know. Is it, they're all celebrities or it can be like in any of It could be a like esoteric celebrity, like a little known celebrity, but it has to be someone that other, at least one other person has to confirm it as someone <laughs> who exists. My daughter counts. Um, let me think about that one. Come come back to that one. You come back to that one. I, okay. I mean, I've been told that I look uh, before, but a little bit like Jeremy Shockey, who's a football player for the. Do you guys know him? Giants. He's a real person. Okay. Was, that's the football, so I'm not familiar. But no, it's good. Yeah, no, it doesn't either. <laughs> Wait, who's that guy from Home Alone? Yeah. <laughs> him too. <laughs> So tell us, one of the questions here, and this is from the team, what's one of the biggest myths that you find yourself, for a startup, that you find yourself oftentimes disproving or helping someone understand that it's a myth? Um, the biggest myth is that repeat entrepreneurs are better than first-time mm -hmm. entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, I consistently see that. Like if you look through our portfolio, most people we back, vast majority, this is the first time that they've ever done anything. Um, look, I'm not saying there aren't smart people that have done it before that can, that can do it again. Um, I mean, a lot of people say, like, you have to be a first time, you have to be a second time entrepreneur. Like, they think, yep. like, that's part of the criteria yeah. to some people. No, I mean, and you look through the backgrounds, and we have an entrepreneur, and she's fantastic. Um, she was homeless before she founded her company. And, you know, she mm -hmm. taught herself to code, in the, or taught herself to build a product with her husband in the local community center, um, got their first customer, the first customer liked it, they bought it. Um, like, she's going to be successful come hell or high water. And I love backing people like that because she's super passionate about solving this problem that she discovered um, and she had to fix for herself. And those are the types of people that um, I don't think everyone realizes are, are the best entrepreneurs. You know, it's, it's, it could be anybody. I mean, it really can be. Whether it's somebody, I don't care how old you are, I don't care where you went to school, I don't care what your degree's in. I don't care what you did before this. Um, I care, it starts for me with, show me the product. I wanna see what you built. And I understand your first product is not gonna be your best product. Um, I get it, but if you can show me a team or a person that can build that first product and they're passionate about it, then I'll, I'll, I'll lock arms with them and run forward. But um, I, I think there's a real myth that you have to be you know, the repeat person. And I've just, at least in my experience, you know. And the Elon Musk is great. Um, Steve Jobs is great. After that, I run out of names of people who've really built massive companies multiple times. Yeah. So for Crosschecks, I mean, <clears throat> think about the future that Crosschecks creates, the, the world that we do create in the future. Looking into that future, what's the thing you're most excited about? 
I'm excited at the prospect of raising the life expectancy of the United States by 10 years. I think that to me is a bizarrely achievable goal for cross-checks. And I think that it comes from um, you know, your ability to take technology that has persisted in other industries and apply it to our lives and to our health and to do for um, you know, human beings what um, technology has, has done for um, you know, telephones and, and all kinds of other uh, devices. Awesome. I love that one too. That's, that's my favorite part of it. Um, so before we, I'm, I'm going to stop asking questions from me and open it up to you guys to ask questions. So fire away. Who's got a question for Chris? So I read a really far book a couple months ago from Andy Jenks, um, one of your uh, the most recent employees that, uh, at Drive. We actually use it as a recruiting tool like, quite a bit when we're recruiting out on the West Coast. So was he like primed and ready to come to Columbus, or, or how did you pitch Columbus to him? Well, at the bottom of a Crown Royal maple. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, the, um, <sighs> Andy we worked was, on them uh, pretty good. Yeah, they did work out pretty good. <laughs> we should get a case of that. Um, no, I mean, look, Andy was, uh, he's somebody I'd known for a long time in Silicon Valley. I'd known him for a better part of um, 12 years um, when we, uh, now since, um, since we moved out there. He's one of the very first people I met. And what was interesting was Andy was an entrepreneur who'd been out founding lots of different companies. And, the, uh, and suddenly I leave Silicon Valley to come and do Drive. Um, he was doing his, his next business, which was a, a next generation storage company in Silicon Valley. And in the process of uh, building his business, they realized very quickly that if they were to build all of their team in Silicon Valley, they wouldn't be able to raise money fast enough to build their products. So they started looking for engineering centers outside of Silicon Valley. And I was like, well, hey, there's this place called the Midwest. You should come check it out. And um, he was out looking for hubs that he could hire engineers. And it went, he's looking at everything from direct flights to engineering talent to everything else. Um, and he was really between Minneapolis and Boulder when they were building it. Um, but you know, through the course of this, I had the opportunity to talk with him more about what we were doing and more of an opportunity to, to explore with him around what it meant to be uh, an investor in the Midwest versus being an investor in Silicon Valley, and it, it is different. I mean, in, in Silicon Valley, you're kind of like processing deal flow. I would say out here, this is much more of uh, working with entrepreneurs to like build companies. And I, I think from Andy's standpoint, as he started to unpack all of that stuff um, over the course of two years, it was not like, hey, one meeting, we're done. Um, he came out for multiple visits. Um, he brought his wife out, he brought his family out. Um, saw that this would be a better quality of life for them, saw that it was a better place to raise their kids, saw that uh, it was a better career opportunity for him. And suddenly, the, the echo chamber that's in Silicon Valley is not as loud. And suddenly, you start gravitating towards, what is the real opportunity for me? And in the process of doing that, you know, he, he agreed that this was, it was a spectacular place to build a venture firm and that we do have an opportunity to change the world here. And, you know, that's my message to everybody. Like, I do not, I do not want, if you think it's the best, better quality of life, don't move here. If you think it's, you know, uh, closer proximity to the uh, East Coast, don't move here. If you like it because it's cheap, don't move here. Like, the only reason you should move to Columbus, Ohio is because you think this is the best place on planet Earth for you to build your life and your career. 
And in the process of doing that, you know, there are a lot of people who have un, un, under, looked under the hood and agreed that this is the best opportunity for them. And I think he's the first of many. And you guys have already proven uh, a lot that with your own examples of recruiting people in from the coast who are coming to cross checks to fulfill their dreams. Um, and I've got other companies across the portfolio where we're pulling people from Google, from Facebook, from, you know, you name the big company, um, we've got people coming into our portfolio and moving from Silicon Valley to these companies because they believe in it. Cool. All right, more questions. Zach? Uh, I know you're a native of Cincinnati, uh, as am I. So I'm curious if, so I'm curious just if uh, from having been there, and growing up there, did that play a part in your decision to come back or just you know play a role in promoting the Midwest as this hub at all? You know, it, um, ironically, it worked against me um, because when Mark first said to me, "Hey, you should leave Sequoia and start a venture capital fund in the Midwest. Uh, it's the best place to build a business," I was like, "Dude, <laughs> I grew up in Cincinnati. I know what the Midwest is all about. It's the Rust Belt." Um, you know, if you pull kids in high schools and you ask them what they want to be when they grow up in Ohio, they all say, I want to go to Miami of Ohio because that's the Ivy League of Ohio. <laughs> Not that it isn't, by the way. Um, <laughs> with a goal to getting into the management training program at Procter & Gamble. Like, it's not startup town. It's go and build a career at a corporation. And that bias was really stuck in my head because um, that's what it was. I mean, frankly, that's what it was like when I grew up here. Um, and so it was hard for me, harder for me to believe that um, this was happening in the Midwest um, because that bias was here. And so I, I probably was you know, more pessimistic against the region than most. And you know, when we started looking at it and looking at the opportunity, and you know, very clearly we tell this all the time, like our strategy is not a, uh, a rah-rah Midwest strategy. Our strategy is, look, this is, this is an opportunity that is better than anything else on planet Earth. Um, and we tell that story. We talk about the raw ingredients. So um, look, there, I, I think the people in the Midwest are, are truly special. And I think it is, you know, everyone told me that everyone here was super nice. And I didn't quite get it until I got here. And now I'm like, ironically, having grown up here, I'm like, yeah, no, they are really nice here. This is like the nicest people around. Um, but um, I definitely came with some biases against the region and you know I think that's that's one of the things we work against a lot is there's a stereotype against the region um, that's held fairly broadly in in popular circles all right more questions everybody all right back there Priyank um, so you have a really unique experience because you're both an investor and an entrepreneur um, how would you contrast those two experiences and how have they both helped you, um, how, how has each experience helped the other one um, improve? So, um, so when I was at Sequoia, I kind of was given the mantra that, look, this is an apprenticeship business, and you need to come with us, and you need to learn the business. And, and I, I think I did um, to a reasonable degree, and I would find myself in meetings saying the same things that Doug would say, or that Mike Morris would say, or that Jim Getz would say. Um, and I was saying all the right things um, that, because I, I'd learned that those are the right things to say. But I didn't understand them. I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't have empathy for them. And I didn't know what it meant to not know how you're going to make payroll this year. Or, nor did I know what it meant to um, 
to you know have to fire somebody, nor did I know what it meant to uh, have to look an investor in the eye and convince them that this is a great investment opportunity. Um, I didn't know what that meant. Um, having started Drive, I, I pull on those experiences way more, those personal experiences um, of having lived through it than I ever did the stories of the past companies that I had worked with or been around at Sequoia. And you just, it is a totally different, um, you know, thing when you're on you're on the field per se, running the offense. It's is a is a different game than being on the sidelines as a coach calling the play that somebody else is in running. And I think that's that to me has been a big big difference. And I, I believe that having started a company though, it makes you a better investor because you have a much better understanding for how feasible is it to do all these things. And it's not as simple as moving a number in a spreadsheet. It's like no, that like to do that you need to. You know that's X hours of work, and you can see the processes because you've you've lived through them. Um, so I'm always, you know, when we hire folks at Drive, I'm always looking for those experiences. I'm looking for folks with that background because now I, I you know, um, and we used to say this at Sequoia too, uh, would believe that the entrepreneurs are the best investors because they've lived through it, um, and I believe that very very firmly. Okay, so before we before we end, I'd like for you to think about a. Uh, well, first you got to figure out a doppelganger, but I guess that football player guy works. But um, <laughs> so think of a piece of advice, a piece of sage advice for the company that you could just, you have everybody here listening. Um, what's one piece of advice you could give all of these people who are putting in all of their time and energy into building this amazing, massive company? The, the best advice I can offer is that, um, look, we used to talk about this all the time. You know, when we first moved here, we always tell the story that um, we burned the boats, that we were, were on the island, and the only choice is to make this work. And that mentality, I think, is something that is, is super important. Um, and I see that in every time I meet somebody from Crosschecks. Like, I get the sense that your culture here um, is something that you've evolved over time into being an incredibly high standard that brings out the very best in people. Um, and that to me is super encouraging because when I've seen that unfold in the past, the people who have that mentality, they do things that other people would think was impossible. And I promise you, there's no memo floating around Sequoia Capital saying that you know, LinkedIn would be worth $30 billion or that Google would be worth $100 billion or, or however many it's worth today. Um, Oftentimes our prejudices bias us against what is truly possible when you get a great group of people together. So my advice would be keep that culture. I think that culture that you guys have here is, is one of the strongest pillars of what you all bring into the company every single day. And it's something that you should protect. So when you're interviewing somebody, you're talking to a customer, you're talking to an investor, hold them to the same bar. Is this somebody that you really want to work with? Is this really somebody that you want to spend time with? Um, if the answer to that is no, raise your hand and say, sorry, I don't, I don't think they're a fit um, because you know what it takes to do all the things that you guys do and it's not easy and it doesn't necessarily you know, feel sexy to go in and paint the walls in the office. Um, but I believe that that's the stuff that makes great companies. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Chris. I appreciate it. Pleasure.